I would like to dedicate my remarks this evening to the memory of Dr. Duane Berquist, a great philosopher and teacher, well known to Thomas Aquinas College. He had been my guide and mentor for my entire adult life, and were it not for his rich teachings, which originally attracted me to philosophy, I would not be standing here before you tonight. Now, Thomas Aquinas College is well known for centering its curriculum on the great books of the Western world. But one of the first things a student notices about these books is that many of them say opposite things. This poses a problem for how the beginner can learn from them and also raises the larger question of whether we can learn anything from philosophers if they cannot agree among themselves. Imagine if carpenters could never agree on anything. If you ask one, he insists plywood is the only sensible choice for your project. If you ask another, he says, above all, you should not use plywood. Use anything else but that. Every book published in carpentry is quickly followed by another book that attacks all the principles and conclusions of the first. No two carpenters can agree on how to build a deck, a chair, a wall, or a house, nor on what tool to use for any procedure, or even on what carpentry is. Would this not provoke in anyone despair and justify concluding that there's no such thing as the art of carpentry? Well, philosophy seems to be in this very predicament. From its inception, it has been plagued by disagreement. Some philosophers have said there is only one elementary substance, others that elementary substances are infinite in number and in kind. Others deny that any substance can be known. Some philosophers say all human knowledge is derived from sense experience. Others that intellectual knowledge does not depend on the senses. And still others, there is no human knowledge whatsoever. Some say happiness is pleasure, others wealth, others honor, still others that the highest good is different for every individual. Philosophers say contrary things both about the starting points and about how to proceed in philosophy. They even disagree on what philosophy is. Here's a quotation from David Hume. Quote, there is nothing which is not subject to, of debate and in which men of learning are not of contrary opinions. The most trivial question escapes not our controversy. And in the most momentous, we are not able to give any certain decision. Disputes are multiplied as if everything was uncertain, unquote. No subject is free from these conflicting opinions. It seems every philosopher has a philosophy of his own. The universal disagreement appears to discredit philosophy completely and is a perennial scandal. What is the most reasonable thing to do when authorities disagree on some important question? Historically, there have been three different reactions. The first is typified by Michel de Montaigne, a 16th century essayist, for whom the many opposing views of philosophers is itself sufficient proof that no resolutions are possible. For Montaigne, philosophy consists merely in listing the opinions and then moving on to the next topic without ever attempting to resolve the question. 
This kind of radical skepticism actually dominates academia today. They tell us philosophy can be no more than history of what philosophers have said and have thought. Instead of let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, the sign above the entrance to the modern academy would say, abandon all hope of truth, ye who enter here. Anyone who dares to say he has found some truth outside of science is scorned and ridiculed. Believing that there is such a thing as truth is taken as proof of arrogance. What should we make of this utter skepticism, which is the expression of a profound intellectual despair? First of all, we should point out the self-contradictory nature of radical skepticism. If someone says no truth can be known, then he is asserting something he thinks is true and that can be known. Every denial of the possibility of truth assumes that truth exists. Thus, there's no need to argue against radical skepticism. It self-destructs. It is absurd to use reason to attack reason. The skeptic, in effect, is sawing off the limb he is sitting on. But we can say more. Montaigne and most modern thinkers are counseling that we give up the enterprise. Is philosophy that impossible? If something is difficult, there are always those who will call it impossible. For decades, field and track commentators proclaimed that it is physiologically impossible for a human being to run a mile in less than four minutes. Until May 6, 1964, when Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds a record that lasted only 46 days. The four-minute barrier has since been broken by over 1,000 male athletes, some of whom were in high school at the time. Likewise, in our criminal justice system, disagreement does not cripple a trial. The prosecution and defense each present the strongest case they possibly can, but we do not conclude that no verdict can be reached because of the opposing views. In science, also, contradiction does not produce despair. In the 19th and 20th centuries, when physicists found strong evidence that light is a particle and that light is also a wave, they did not despair, but worked for a resolution, which ultimately led to the development of quantum theory. Also, skeptics may be making more of a statement about their own personal incapacity than about the impossibility of finding solutions. Perhaps Montaigne, when he throws up his hands, is telling us more about his own inability than about philosophy itself. There is, after all, the eight-year-old boy who declared, no one can lift 100 pounds. I know, I tried it. But the most telling rejoinder to the skeptic comes from nature herself. Every man has a natural desire to know, and natural desires are not in vain. For example, every animal has a natural desire for food. This does not mean that no animal ever starves, but it does mean that food for each species exists in nature and is in principle possible to attain. Likewise, man's natural desire to know does not mean everyone attains the truth, but that truth exists 
and is possible to reach with the equipment nature has given us, the senses and the mind. Even the skeptic gives witness to the natural desire to know because he has despaired. And no one despairs over something he never desired in the first place. One thinks of Aesop's fable with the fox and the sour grapes. There is something too facile and cowardly in this first reaction. It is unworthy of the wise man. Rene Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, read Montaigne and was dissatisfied with his skepticism. In response to disagreement, Descartes offers a different proposal. He explains that he experienced bad teachers in college and concluded that none of the persons who taught him really knew anything. And since previous philosophers disagree with each other, he concluded none of them had the truth either, because if one did, he would have convinced the others. Now here's a direct quotation from Descartes saying that, quote, there is in the sciences scarce any question about which men of ability have not disagreed. Now, whenever two such men are carried to opposite conclusions regarding one and the same matter, one at least must be in error. Indeed, neither of them, it would seem, has the required knowledge. For if the reasoning of either of them were certain and evident, he would be in a position to propound it to the other in such a wise as to convince him also of its truth." Unquote. So Descartes decides to reject his predecessors and contemporaries and begin philosophy again by himself. If you want to do something right, do it yourself. Now this proposal is an improvement over Montaigne. Descartes has hope that we can attain truth and satisfy our natural desire to know. But Descartes' reaction has shortcomings of its own. To accomplish difficult things, we need all the help we can get. In waging war, for example, we need as many allies as possible. So Descartes seems to be assuming that finding the truth in philosophy is easy. It's so easy, you can do it without anyone's help. A sign that this is false is the disagreement that Descartes admits. People do not disagree on easy and obvious things, like what is the square root of nine. Also, there are some areas of knowledge where Descartes' proposal is impossible. To learn a second language, for example, we need the dependence on persons who already speak that language. Did Descartes make all of his own clothing, grow his own food, heal himself when sick, and manufacture all the items he need to use? Human beings naturally depend on others in many ways. It is natural to do so in the intellectual life also. Venerable Bede once wrote, quote, if no one receives existence from himself, so likewise no one can from himself be wise, unquote. In my own personal opinion, the four wisest men in human history were Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas. None of these men tried to achieve wisdom all alone. Plato spent 10 years as a disciple of Socrates. Aristotle spent 20 years studying under Plato. 
St. Augustine had St. Ambrose, and St. Thomas was formed by St. Albert the Great. Furthermore, why not use the insights of those who have gone before us? If 10 men sincerely try to solve a problem, even if they all fail, one or more is bound to stumble upon some useful insight. To reject them is to throw all that away. Even if they all fall into grave errors, we can still learn from them not to make the same mistakes. But we cannot do this if we reject their views wholesale. If one man investigates without the help of others, he's more likely to discover only part of the truth rather than the whole truth. But why not gather the parts together? If you refuse to, you run the risk of never knowing the whole truth about anything. We may also ask, what is Descartes assuming about his own mental ability? He seems to be saying, whereas all these other great minds have failed, I will exceed, uh, succeed without help from anyone. This is a far cry from the humility that characterized Pythagoras and the ancient philosophers. Moreover, Descartes cannot avoid inconsistency. If we follow his example by rejecting our predecessors, we will reject all of his ideas and begin anew ourselves. So he leaves a self-defeating heritage. Philosopher Thomas Hobbes wrote elaborate objections to Descartes' meditations. Descartes subsequently published all of Hobbes' objections along with his own rebuttals in the next edition of the meditations. Hobbes, however, still persisted in his criticisms. This so angered Descartes that after several exchanges, he refused to have anything further to do with that Englishman. But since Descartes failed to convince Hobbes, we must conclude by Descartes' own principle that he did not possess the truth. Thus, Descartes refutes himself. Philosophers after Descartes disagree with him on most important matters. So again, by his own standard, he would have to admit he did not know what he was talking about. Disagreement was the problem Descartes began with, but then he's discredited because he disagrees with himself. So Descartes is not solving the problem of disagreement, he's making it worse. His position will be just one more opinion added on to the pile of conflicting opinions that already exists with nothing to distinguish it from the rest. A third response to disagreement is found in thinkers like Aristotle, St. Thomas, and many others. It counsels this, when faced with disagreement, begin again, but with the help of your predecessors. This alternative avoids the contradictions and other defects of the first two reactions. Any opinion that somehow incorporates the parts of the truth in previous views is qualitatively different from them all. Surely this is the most reasonable approach. The practical question, exactly how do we accomplish it? Let me illustrate using the two previous approaches to disagreement we've just discussed. So we have Montaigne and Descartes at odds on this question, right? They represent two extremes. Montaigne is saying, in effect, wisdom is impossible. Descartes is saying, it is easy. 
You don't even need help to attain it. As they stand, these two positions are utterly incompatible, though each has some part of the truth. Neither one, however, will acknowledge the truth the other side has seen. Descartes will never admit that philosophy is impossible, and Montaigne will never agree that it's easy. Let us see if we can't reconcile these two irreconcilable opinions. We can begin with a very general principle. The more contains the less. For example, if Achilles can lift 200 pounds, then even more so, he can lift 100 pounds. The more contains the less. In the same way, anyone who says something is easy must also say that it is, it is at least possible. And anyone who says something is impossible also must say that it is at least difficult. Now, possible and difficult are not opposites. In fact, they're quite compatible. It is difficult, but possible, to run a mile in less than four minutes. It is difficult, but possible, to pass the bar exam. The common ground between impossible and easy is saying finding the truth amid disagreement is difficult, but possible. This puts us in a position to see the part of the truth each of these two men is saying. The middle position is actually more probable than either one of their positions because it has none of their defects or self-contradictions. This resolution of opposites is like a sieve that filters out the dross and preserves only the gold. So behold, the disagreement between Montaigne and Descartes can be resolved. And here's the important part. We did it with the help of our predecessors, Montaigne and Descartes. We can draw one further valuable lesson from this disagreement. Plato and Aristotle teach that the catalyst for philosophy is wonder, an emotion compounded of three elements, a desire to know, the fear of error, and the hope of overcoming the obstacles that stand in the way of the truth. If any of those three components gets out of balance, wonder is destroyed, and the whole intellectual life is compromised. If there's too much fear, it paralyzes the mind and produces the despair of skepticism, as we see with Montaigne. Overconfidence, on the other hand, causes rashness, as we see in Descartes. Again, their conflicting opinions has been extremely instructive. Philosophers agree on much more than is realized. Now, I'm actually going to bring out your, your chart here. We're going to talk about that in a second. Okay. The agreement is seldom on the surface, however. For example, the first Greek philosophers disagreed radically on what the principles of nature are. So again, direct your, your attention to that chart uh, on the back of your outline, which divides out their opposing opinions. <clears throat> and I borrowed most of this from chapter two of book one of Aristotle's physics. <clears throat> Look at the divergence of opinion here. Some of these men said, there's only one principle in nature. Others said, no, there are many. Even those who agreed it was many, some insisted that's a finite number, like Empedocles, 
He had six, earth, air, fire, and water, love, and strife. Others said, no, no, they're infinite in number. Um, that's Democritus and all the same kind, however. Anaxagoras said, no, they're all infinite in number and infinite in kind as well. And the other group, the ones who said it's only one, some said well, it was changing, changeable. Others said, no, it's unchanging. Parmenides and Melissus fell out when one, one said it's finite, the other said infinite. And even those who said it was one and changeable, they disagreed on what it was. Thales thought it was water, Heraclitus fire, Diogenes air, and Anaximander was kind of cagey. He says, I'm, I'm not actually saying what it is. It's kind of the indefinite. And he was, he was really smart, because the indefinite is just part of the characteristic of that uh, original universal matter. Now, quite a smorgasbord of opinions, right? Nine possibilities and a thinker in each slot. Every opinion here is contradicted by eight other opinions. What could be more hopeless? Yet, Aristotle says something very shocking about these opinions. In effect, he says, these men are all saying the same thing. What? How can you say that when their claims all contradict each other? It would be difficult to invent a more divergent set of opinions. Nevertheless, Aristotle sagely points out that Thales explains change by expansion and contraction of water. Empedocles accounts for change by assembly and disassembly of the four elements. The atomists, Democritus and Anaxagoras, use congregation and separation to explain change. Even Parmenides, Aristotle remarks, treats hot and cold as principles under the names of fire and earth. Now these are all pairs. What do all these pairs have in common? They're all opposites. Aristotle's right. All of these men take it for granted that change is between opposites. This hidden agreement is astonishing. The surface discords hides the deeper harmony which provokes wonder. These philosophers seem to have, it's almost as if they have a secret pact that even they themselves are not fully aware of. And it's especially encouraging because whatever they all agree on is more probable than only what one says. So we're making progress here. Okay. Aristotle then verifies this insight that they have with an induction, looking at the various kinds of change, and it, it is verified there. Then he confirms it further with a reason showing if there's no opposition, no change is possible. For instance, going from white to sweet does not force a change, because white and sweet are not opposed. I can go from, from 10 o'clock, this, this thing is white, and 11 o'clock it's sweet. No change is necessary there. Maybe I start out with sugar. <laughs> it's the same sugar I had, and there's no change whatsoever. So the disagreement of these first philosophers leads us, with the help of Aristotle, to discover the first and most evident thing about change. Change is only between opposites. By the way, Aristotle draws not just this insight from the first philosophers, but many, many others as well. This is the fi very finest use 
one can make of one's predecessors. Many winters ago, when I was an undergraduate, just beginning in philosophy, merely seeing what's on this chart and what Aristotle did with it would have been sufficient to make me a disciple of Aristotle for the rest of my life. We must not allow surface disagreements among philosophers to make us overlook any hidden agreements they might have. By the way, what we just looked at here is a superb illustration of tradition in its very best sense. Tradition is not mindlessly repeating the past. Tradition is advancing a science or an art by building on what is best in your predecessors and using their help. Now, sometimes, in this case, we had philosophers agreeing secretly on something with a great insight. Sometimes what thinkers agree on is true and insightful, but other times they agree on a common error, and they each go their separate way after that. Take the current conflict between the evolutionists and the creationists. One side says, natural selection produced all species of animals and plants, so there is no God. The other side insists that because God created all animals and plants, evolution is a hoax. Despite their opposition, both sides agree on an unspoken premise. Both are assuming that if one agent is responsible for the entire, entirety of an effect, then another agent cannot also be responsible for the entirety of the same effect. To illustrate, you can print this, paint this entire wall green. Let's say you paint the top half green, and I paint the bottom half green. Nothing impossible about that. But it seems you cannot paint the entire wall green and be the agent cause of that, and I paint the entire wall green at the same time. One of us is superfluous. This tacit premise certainly seems true, even obvious, but it is false. I and my paintbrush are both, at the same time, agent causes of this entire wall being painted green. There's no impossibility as long as one of the agents gives the other its causation. I move and direct the paintbrush to paint the wall. It's an instrumental agent while I'm the principal agent. We can even add a third agent if you want. My foreman directs me to paint that entire wall green. There's three agent causes there. No contradiction. So if you remove this error from this conflict between evolution and creationism, the disagreement vanishes. There is no impossibility in both God and evolution being agent causes of all animal and plant species, provided God uses evolution as a tool. This is an especially satisfying resolution because it enables us to agree completely with the positive premises on both sides of the disagreement. So we notice a pattern here. Not only is there often surprising agreement below the surface, but that agreement or some other common ground offers a key to resolving the question. Let us test this with some more examples. One of the most extreme clashes in the opinion, uh, of opinion in the history of philosophy occurred between Heraclitus and Parmenides. Some of you perhaps have studied both of them. Heraclitus insists that all things are constantly changing. You can't step in the same river twice. 
while Parmenides contends that nothing changes because change is impossible. How could there be any common ground between these two opinions? Well, a careful reading of their views reveals they both agree that change involves a contradiction. They say this because change is between opposites, which we just saw. But how can hot become cold without a contradiction? Agreeing that change entails a contradiction, they then both go their separate ways. Heraclitus argues that change is evident to the senses and therefore change exists. And if it entails a contradiction, so be it. Parmenides asserts that contradictions are impossible, nothing more obvious to the mind than that, and therefore change is impossible, and we must not trust our senses in this matter. Their conflicting conclusions that everything is changing and nothing changes points to the premise they agree on, change incorporates a contradiction. That is the questionable assertion in their reasoning. And if we can show that to be false, we shall not only learn something important about change, but we shall have resolved the opposition between Heraclitus and Parmenides. We can then agree with Heraclitus that motion exists, and with Parmenides that contradictory things are impossible. The common ground underlying their disagreement told us where to look. Here's another case. And same sort of thing occurs in science. In 1914, the southern United States was blighted by pellagra. Two expert research teams composed of famous doctors could not find a solution, but surmised that pellagra was a contagious disease caused by an unknown microorganism, a bacterium, probably spread by the stable fly. Then the Surgeon General of the United States sent Dr. Joseph Goldberger, an experienced epidemiologist to take a fresh look at the case. After a painstaking study, Dr. Goldberger concluded that pellagra was not a contagious disease at all, but resulted from a dietary deficiency. The southern experts, however, scoffed at Goldberger and tried to discredit him. Now, is this a hopeless impasse that calls for despair? Not at all. If we look for what both sides agree on, we shall find the key to resolving the dispute. Both sides agreed that the matter should be settled by a scrupulous application of the scientific method. The Southern team pointed to the great success of Louis Pasteur and others in explaining diseases by isolating their bacterial agents. Pellagra was likely to be a similar case. Dr. Goldberger, while not denying any of that, devised multiple meticulous experiments and control groups that conclusively proved pellagra was not contagious, but was caused by lack of sufficient niacin in the diet. Both sides accepted the scientific method as authoritative in this question, and it finally led to the truth despite the Southerners who continued to reject it, even after the evidence was in. Behind many philosophic disagreements, there lies a deeper, more significant agreement that incorporates the resolution of the problem. Now, there's another kind of hidden, hidden agreement. 
we may call it unconscious or involuntary. Suppose someone denies free will. After we have shown that his arguments against it are no good, we can take the refutation one step further. We can point out in what the opponent says or does something that shows he himself also believes in free will, despite his protest to the contrary. In his unguarded moments, he will praise or blame someone or say what he is planning to do this afternoon. Neither of these makes any sense unless we're free. This means if we look beyond what the determinist says with his mouth and pay attention to how he lives, he too will give witness to free will. It is a strong confirmation of free will that even those who try to deny it cannot avoid assuming it. It is the same for anyone who denies any self-evident truth. Some philosophers have denied and ridiculed universal ideas. Not only can we show their arguments are fallacious in this regard, we can easily catch them thinking and reasoning using universal ideas. This is because they think with human minds just like our own and everyone else's. So far, we've examined several cases of disagreement and shown how they can be resolved. Now we're in a position to make a much stronger statement. Not only can conflicting opinions be resolved, they are a necessary step in searching for the truth. In fact, the absence of disagreement can prove to be a hazard. If we encounter a statement that happens to be false, we are more likely to be taken in by it if there's no opposition to it. For example, the poet Baudelaire claims the imagination is the queen of the faculties and makes a persuasive case for it. Blaise Pascal, however, calls the imagination the mistress of error. Without this opposing view, we might adopt Baudelaire's assertion uncritically. The most productive thing you can do with an extreme opinion is to put it up against its opposite. That will always tame it somewhat. Likewise, we might be taken in by Descartes' declaration that motion is so easy and obvious that it does not even need a definition. Were it not for Zeno's serious objections against the very existence of motion. Opposition fosters the element of caution in wonder and prevents us from rashly grabbing at the truth. Opposing opinions also help to prevent us from overstating our case and are likely to expose any ambiguity in our premises and assumptions. We see this principle applied in good politics. One of the functions of loyal opposition party that is out of power is to keep honest the party that is in power. So analyzing conflicting opinions before trying to judge a difficult matter is like listening to the advice of many persons before making a difficult decision. There's a much better chance of taking all the important aspects into account. Not being exposed to disagreement on a topic is like someone raised in a germ-free atmosphere. His immune system has not developed, and he will fall victim to the first bacteria he encounters when he leaves his sterile environment. Likewise, by considering opposing points of view, we develop an immunity to weaker arguments. Aristotle, in all of his treatises, before trying to settle a matter definitively, 
develops the opinions of his predecessors, which most of the time are conflicting, using dialectic to argue opposite conclusions. He explains this procedure, quote, to doubt well is necessary for those wishing to discover. For the discovery afterwards is an untying of the difficulties before. Those investigating without having first considered the difficulties are like those who do not know where they ought to go, and in addition, do not know if the thing they sought has been found or not." Unquote. Someone who does not see the difficulties does not know how to proceed and will not recognize a solution even if he happens to stumble on it by chance. Opposite opinions not only help us discover the truth, but also confirm it after it's discovered. In his famous Ethics, Aristotle begins the discussion of happiness by carefully consulting his predecessors on the subject. Then he rigorously reasons out the definition of happiness. Then in the very next chapter, he takes the trouble to show how his own answer takes into account all the parts of the truth found in their views, saying, quote, with a true view, all data harmonize, but with a false one, the facts soon clash, unquote. For he maintains it is not probable that their opinions are entirely mistaken, quote, but rather that they should be right in at least some one respect or even in most respects, unquote. In this way, we learn that Aristotle's conclusion is more probable than any of these others, since it unites in a single definition all the parts of the truth found separately in theirs without any of their defects. Thus, he has used conflicting opinions in a wonderful way to confirm the truth. But what happens if no one before you has addressed the topic you wish to investigate and there are no conflicting opinions? Aristotle was the first man to write a treatise on metaphysics. Thus, he had no conflicting opinions of predecessors to work with. What does he do? He himself constructs opposing arguments on all the most important questions in this new science. He devotes the entirety of Book Three of the Metaphysics to this before trying to resolve these questions definitively. That's a nice demonstration of the looking at conflicting opinions is a necessary part of the path to truth. So conflicting opinions to the wise man are what lumber is to the carpenter. Without lumber, a carpenter cannot proceed to make anything. Likewise, without disputes and disagreements, a wise man cannot resolve difficult matters. This is also true in science and theology. A colleague of the great physicist Niels Bohr remarked, quote, difficulties were for him merely the external appearance of new knowledge. And in an apparently hopeless con contradiction, he conceived the germ of wider and more comprehensive order and harmony, unquote. We already mentioned in 1920th century, physicists found evidence that light is a particle and evidence that it's a wave. Out of this conflict eventually came the new insights of quantum mechanics. Einstein says about his own theory, relativity theory arose from necessity from serious and deep contradiction in the old theory from which there seemed to be no escape. In theology also, we find the same role of disagreement. 
Theology was born with the fathers of the church working to resolve apparent contradictions between different passages of scripture. Reconciling these seeming contradictions led to a deeper understanding of the faith. Also, we notice in the Summa Theologica, every article begins by giving the reader several reasons for disagreeing with what St. Thomas is about to say. Then after giving definitive reasons for his own teaching, he shows how it enables us to answer the arguments to the contrary. Hence, disagreements are not an embarrassment or an occupational hazard in the life of the mind. They are an essential part of the enterprise. To discover and confirm the truth, the philosopher, the scientist, and the theologian must seek out and actively cultivate difficulties and disagreements. The resolution of any disagreement requires finding a deeper level of agreement, some kind of common ground between the disputants. In some cases, this common ground will be a common premise, true or false, that both sides agree on. In other cases, we can reduce both sides to a more probable middle position. If neither of these options is available, we can still have recourse to some neutral, reasonable procedure to settle the matter. Even where opponents do not agree on a conclusion, they can often agree on the method to settle their differences. For example, let's say you and I disagree on how many square feet there are in a certain room on campus. You say 450 and I say 600 square feet. We don't agree on the conclusion, but we do agree on a valid, rigorous way to decide who is right. Measure the length and the width of the room and multiply the two numbers. In legal matters, two litigants who disagree about who owes who money can settle their dispute if they submit themselves to the authority of the law. The unbiased procedures of the court are the common ground. Recourse to a common method can resolve conflicts of opinion in science. If two physicists cannot uh, disagree on a hypothesis of trying to explain the same phenomena, they can resolve their disagreement by devising an experiment that will lead to a di different results for each hypothesis. In philosophic disagreements, we can always fall back on the common ground of axioms that are self-evident to everyone and the laws of valid reasoning common to all human minds. No disagreement can be resolved without having recourse to some kind of common ground. Many centuries ago, Heraclitus said, quote, those who speak with understanding must be strong in what is common to all. In conclusion, we have seen that disagreement is a potential obstacle to the truth, but that's not the whole picture. Disagreement is also a necessary means to the truth. Even when one side is entirely correct, its truth will become more evident when we see its power to dismantle the apparent evidence supporting the opposite side. The wise Roman Stoic Epictetus once said, the beginning of philosophy is the recognition of disagreement. Then it seeks the cause of it, and then discovers some principle to distinguish what seems to be true from what really is true. That philosophers disagree is obvious. Nobody misses that. What many people do miss, however, 
is the underlying common ground and the many discoveries that a study of conflicting opinions can bring to light. The philosopher does not give up in despair when there are opposing arguments on a given subject. Instead, he seeks a solution. The skeptics say that philosophy ends with disagreement. Wiseman say it begins there. For the philosopher then, disagreement is not a scandal, but an opportunity. Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>